Welcome back to At Source, a community conversation that gets to the origin of matters that affect us the most. I'm your host, Kieran Cook, and together we'll be diving into health and well-being, gaining useful insights direct from the source. Dr. Hinemoa Alder is a Māori child and adolescent psychiatrist, author, advocate and former television presenter. Dr. Hinemoa is also a researcher on traumatic brain injury for the Auckland University of Technology and a member of the New Zealand Mental Health Review Tribunal. She is a staunch advocate for Te Reo Māori and continues her learning journey in Te Reo. She has most recently written the book Wawata, Moon Dreaming, Daily Wisdom, guided by Hina, the Māori moon after the success of Araha, Māori wisdom for the contented life lived in harmony with the planet, which was named on the Oprah Winfrey Book Club in 2021. In this episode, we cover the power of connection to our heritage, remaining unapologetically yourself, and the spiritual wisdom in Dr. Hinemoa's books. Kia ora, Dr. Hinemoa. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm a fan of your work and your books, so it's such a pleasure to welcome you to our At Source community. We talk about health in all sorts of different forms in this space, an area that you're extensively knowledgeable in. So I'm going to dive right in. Can you tell us a little bit about what first interested you in the world of science and psychiatry? Oh, kia ora, namahi nui, kia koe, kia koutou katoa. Uh, no muri whenua tēnei kuaka e mihiana ki a koe ki a koutou. I just wanted to um, introduce myself very briefly mm. in our language. And uh, as you say, yeah, I, I, um, I've been a psychiatrist now. I've been a specialist since 2006. And I've always been a very curious kid. So uh, growing up, I was in a farm nowhere. Questions and exploration were really encouraged uh, my father got me a microscope when I was really young, maybe seven or eight, and I still have it. Uh, I've always felt very much at home in nature, by the ocean and the bush. Um, birds are a, a definite favourite of mine. And so in that sense, I've always found nature to be really grounding. And I suppose feeling part of nature has given me the courage to ask the questions about how we understand what's going on around us. Um, I've always been fascinated by the balance of nature and also when things seem to be disturbed in that sense of balance that we experience inside ourselves. So I suppose I've always recognized that not everyone thinks the same way about things. And I've been fascinated by how people navigate their lives. So, um, yeah, I'm interested in how people approach solving their own challenges and different ways of learning. Mm. Um, the the other really um, sad reason that I became a psychiatrist was that my young brother had a very serious mental illness and he took his own life in 1999. So that was another reason, um, a very personal reason why I wanted to understand more about mm. how to take care of people uh, work with people, walk beside people who are going through um, those desperate kinds of thoughts and um, and feeling tortured by yeah. some of the things that go on inside our heads. So um, those are just a few of the things that got me into psychiatry. Mm, that's really interesting. I was going to ask you an interesting question here because um, well, I'm just going to ask you straight up. Do, do you think that all people are equally curious? No, no, I don't think anyone is equally has has exactly the same amount of, of no. any kind of um, characteristic as anyone else. I think curiosity might be considered as like a matrix. There are so many layers and angles to it. It has uh, different kinds of emotional aspects. And I think over the lifespan, you can think about how we evolve in terms of our ability to pursue curiosity from our youngest um, days. Even in the in the womb, we know that we know that um, babies are born, you know, curious. Uh, mm. But the curiosity of a young baby is quite different. Uh, and out of babies, you know, we had a room full of babies. All of their curiosities would be a little bit different, and would also have some similarities. So. 
Long-winded answer to your question. I think there's a lot of complexity and variability to everyone's curiosity. Yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, I had a, a, a long period of time in my life where I was, you know, practicing as an artist and I had much deeper levels of curiosity, I think, back then when I was practicing as an artist because it required a lot of rigorous conceptual research. And I think I was just living more conceptually in, in a headspace back then that was quite different from a headspace that I'm in now. And I feel a lot blunter in a way than I did back then. And I feel like looking around me that there are a lot of humans out there that just aren't naturally that curious. They're just maybe more in the physical domain or, you know, I, I just see lots of layers myself where people just aren't innately that curious and they're just quite happy to be like that. So I was just really interested in your comment around mm. being naturally quite a curious person. I think another element of curiosity too is that for many people it might be quite a private experience and so they might not feel so comfortable to allow others to observe that in themselves. Mm. So I wonder if part of your observation of not perhaps seeing so much curiosity around you might be to do with how people express it rather than whether or not they actually are curious. Just a thought. Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. So, so we just move into this season, season seven, where we've got a special focus on authenticity. And, um, you know, as a proud Māori wahine and a te reo advocate yourself, I'm just really interested in just hearing some of your own thoughts on the power of that cultural identity and connection to heritage you know that you have and in particular you have a well-being focus so just be lovely to hear how you just sort of pull all of that together sure well I think it's fundamental this knowing who we are this sense of our identity and the authenticity if you like that that flows from that is a vital part of our mental well-being and our mental health and we we know this uh, from a range of research sources as well and from practice-based evidence. And I think we know this from, from our daily evidence in our own lives. When we feel, you know, really sure, really sure of, of who we are, where we stand um, and manifesting our values, what we really care about, we have a, a real sense in the gut about that. And when we are torn and perhaps being drawn into other other things that don't feel so comfortable I think we have some instincts that we can draw on that come from that innate true identity that authentic identity that are signaling to us hey you're kind of going a bit off course here um, I think you know as a as a Maori doctor as a Maori specialist this is very much an area that's um that we see every day around the effect of colonization and um, how the, the, the purpose of colonization is to destabilize and essentially get rid of uh, the identity of a whole group of people. And that's that's what was going on um, back, you know, when, when, when the treaty was signed and then a whole lot of other laws that happened to, to strip away the things that provide an authentic identity for Maori people. And and that's that carries on rolling today, um, and so in our in our practice, uh, whether I'm writing court reports or whether I'm at Starship Hospital, we see um, many many more Maori whānau with the effects of that intergenerational trauma, and and that loss of connection with that authentic identity. So a lot of what we are trying to do and to put into in place for those whānau in a meaningful way is reconnecting them with that um, authentic identity. Can you, that sounds good, but tell me in practical terms how you do that. Sure. Um, so we do it in a number of ways. Uh, we, for example, use karakia prayers to to open and close all of our hui. And mm. that helps, uh, you know, because Māori coming into mental health services for all sorts of reasons, are naturally um, and understandably pretty sceptical about how culturally responsive those services are going to be. And yeah. so we've got to be authentic and really walk that culturally safe talk 
with all of our activities. And then we um, progress through um, a whole series of practices which you might understand as rituals of encounter. So the way in which we meet each other, who are you, who am I, who are we together? And then we've, we've understood the various links between ourselves. We understand how we are connected in terms of our whakapapa. And then we can actually have a very different kind of discussion mm. about what's needed. So, and, and anyone will be familiar with the fact that when you go to the doctor, you don't necessarily come out with the things that you really want to talk to the doctor about yeah. right away. Straight away, yeah. You're kind of hedging around and you might kind of check out, it might be a new doctor you've never met before and so you might be a little mm. bit reticent. You check them out, you see how they handle some of the things that you offer them first and second and third. And then usually as people are walking towards the door from the GP, they turn around and say, oh, by the way, mm. actually, I've got these other worries, you know, like my I haven't got any libido or um, yeah, I'm actually yeah. very depressed. Yeah, and, totally. And, and you don't get it all myself. Done. Yeah, and no. 15 so, minutes either. Yeah. No, so that's very, and so that's why, and we know from all sorts of uh, research, as I say, and uh, everyday evidence that when we engage with our Māori whānau in this particular way, we're much more likely to have a quality interaction where people feel respected and heard and listened to. We also have some tools that we use in terms of assessing what the cultural needs are of our whānau. We, we often have kaumātou and queer who we can call upon to be part of sessions. You know, we, we work with people in their... I think of of these sort of states of being when people come into our care, which are some of the most vulnerable states that people can be in. Um, and this might be quite unfamiliar to many of the people listening. You know, extreme uh, psychotic presentations or presentations when people are profoundly depressed and can't eat or drink anything. Yeah. All they can think about are very dark things. Mm. Um, and, and we have an opportunity to um, support them and, and learn about how we can help them. So for our Māori whānau, we, we really have to use um, culturally appropriate means to do that. And it is incredibly practical. It's not, mm. some, sort of, not some sort of luxury nice to have. I, no, it's no. absolutely crucial. Yeah. Are you are you sort of under-resourced and short-staffed in this space? Oh, we know that the whole health sector is is facing massive workforce shortages. Mm. Um, we we would love we would love more resources. We would love to have uh, not have um, people wanting to go and work in Australia because the conditions are better over there. Of course, uh, but we yeah. do we do the best that we can with the resources that we've got. Mm. But it is quite specialist. What I'm hearing from you is that it is quite a specialist um, sort of niche area that you're working in too. So I would have thought that there wouldn't be kind of the care that you're talking about necessarily on tap in droves either. Like a lot of because it's like any any super specialist area like cardiothoracic surgery. There's only yeah. a few of those. Um, parts of uh, of specialist units around the country um like Māori think, mental health there wouldn't be a lot of you know caregivers would there in that space like there would be would be quite short staff right well um i, I think as i say we're we're short staffed across the board and there are lots of kopapa Māori um mental health services in local communities in um gp practices and in, in primary mental health and also in secondary and tertiary uh, situations like the ones that I work in. I think one of the other important things to say is that um, we try to stay really linked up, you know, just because I'm a specialist in a in a hospital setting or in a youth forensic setting doesn't mean that I'm removed every day from all sorts of other activities that are happening at the various mm. levels. So we want to use the information and the expertise that we have at various levels to inform, well, how do we prevent mental illness? How do we um, strengthen the resilience of our people in the community, whether they're Māori or non-Māori? How do we use the what we learn in some of these more specialty areas to inform the health and well-being of everyone in the community? Mm -hmm. I noticed um, you mentioned that you were a forensic um, psychiatrist. Just, just 
explain the forensic part. What's the difference? Oh, sure. So uh, forensic psychiatry is about uh, really centres on where there are people who are committing crimes, where they have a mental illness or have some sort of significant psychological problems. Oh, that's okay. That's great. That was just good because I think some of our listeners wouldn't be clear maybe just on that on that term in itself. And then with your specialist area, you're focused on children and adolescents. You know, what is it that you find particularly rewarding, you know, about working with that particular demographic? And I guess I'm interested in that. Sure. Um, well, you know, working with working with our tamariki mokopuna, with our children and adolescents, it's really about working with with a, a whole extended whānau, with a whole extended whakapapa, genealogy. Mm. So that's one of the things that I love about what I do. Um, and it's about meeting with groups of people. Sometimes, you know, we might, it might look like we're just meeting with one or two people, but we recognize there's a whole lot of other people in the room. You just can't see them. That's uh, but right. They, but their influence is very much mm. present. So uh, working with working with Farno, working with groups of people who are part of the support networks for each other, whether they're biologically related or not, um, is something that I find incredibly inspiring and challenging and exacting in terms of how to try to help these people navigate uh, a healing pathway for themselves and to recognize the resources that they have within the group. Uh, mm. They don't all have to have everything within each individual person. They very much operate as a as an intergenerational group, and I, and mm. I love that. Do you work one-on-one -on -one or are you working more in group settings? Uh, well, it might appear that I'm working one-on-one. -on -one. So, for example, I, from a legal perspective, I might be the responsible clinician under the Mental Health Act of this particular named person. But in fact, and I, I will see that person by themselves daily, and I will see them and other people that they have in their lives as well. Right. Okay. So you are, you do, so that's clinical practice under the hospital but you don't have private practice one-to-one. -one. So my private practice is a very small um, circumscribed practice. I only see, so my PhD and my postdoctoral fellowship and practice around that has been around traumatic brain injury uh, yes. for, for young people. So I do from time to time see young people, uh. but clearly young people with brain injury are usually coming with some caregiving person um, with them, they don't usually navigate their lives no. completely alone. And um, I might really see um, people as individuals, but generally speaking, I'm seeing people who have deep connections and require somebody to be with them. Yeah, that okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So, I mean, you know, obviously this whole adolescent you know, bracket is challenging. I'm just interested in what you might be, might have learned yourself just working with kids. You know, I mean, I'm just curious. That, that we could have a whole wadanga on this. So I know, I know. Any particular thing that there's, there's really yeah. it's you? Yeah. Does it, does it, well, I mean, I'm just curious because I was a high school teacher for many years and then I became a parent and I'm now a teenager. Of, I've, I've had two teens and it's a really different experience, actually, isn't it? Parenting your own teens, yet you navigate others, right? And, and you'd course. think it would make you an expert, but it doesn't. <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. You know, you know my, I've my got kids... my own teenager telling me that, you know, I don't have any empathy and this and that and this and that. And no, you're not leaving the room until we've got this matter sorted <laughs> and reading me the right act, you know. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Well, I think, we, you know, I think we've got to, Come back to the remembering the idea that we all were all teenagers ourselves too, and it is normal to be um, to as a normal developmental part of life to challenge the rules and to challenge your parents or the adults in your life. This is normal, mm. and so for us as adults, it 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 is challenging to try to keep that in mind and to not take these. Um, mm. Bits of, bits of feedback <laughs> as well to not see them as attacks to not see yeah. this as, as so personal and I think that's mm. really important learning uh 
it's to understand where we where we keep our own mental health safe and clear and have our own boundaries and look after the fact that well yes we can we're going to expect that these teenagers are going to um you know have big emotions um say things that are kind of extraordinary and yet we have to stand our ground and be very clear and unshakable and predictable. And that's really hard. It's mm. really, really hard. And of course, things change as as generations change. I mean, my mm. children are in their mm. 30s now. And so when they were teenagers, we didn't have the kinds of um, challenges that we have now with social media and, yeah. the terrible and tech, tech in general yeah. problems with online bullying which is which is really very problematic at the moment. Mm. Um, so I think you know one of the things that uh, I say to a lot of parents is try not to pay quite so much attention to the actual words that your teenagers are saying. Pay attention to the emotions behind the words. What are the emotions trying to mm. communicate? And really, mostly teenagers are doing a couple of things. One, they're protecting their parents and adults around them from knowing too much about what they really feel. So they're they're trying to um, prevent more pain in the wider family in general. So that, you know, sometimes parents might say to me, why won't she tell me what's going on? You know, why won't she? I ask her how she's feeling and she won't say anything? And so one one explanatory model is that well young people don't want to scare their parents and they don't want to cause undue worry um and of course their their logic is flawed because the more that they don't tell their parents what's going on the more worried their parents get so i suppose it's about unpacking some of those lost in translation parts that can happen between parents and young people um I think the other the other key thing is I, I hear quite often uh, parents talking about they want their children to take responsibility. They want the what they want kids to take more responsibility for what's going on, and I think that it's a bit of a red flag. I think that needs unpacking. What why parents require that and what that actually means, and I suppose. Underneath that is often a sense that a lot of parents feel that they want to be respected by their children and why why they want that and what that looks like for parents. And then actually finding a language between the parents and the kids to go, okay, let's try to find a common language which doesn't quite exist yet and that's why we're having lots of arguments or we're not getting mm. on to understand how there can be mutual respect between teenagers and adults, recognizing the fact that, of course, teenagers are hardwired to be difficult and to be challenging. And if they're not being difficult and challenging, I think we should be worried. Uh, mm. We don't want teenagers to be conforming to everything that we say. And if they seem to be doing so, I think we need to look a bit more carefully about what's really going well, on. Well, that would be nice, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> to give you a break from time to time. It would be frankly lovely. I, I do recall being a very yielding teenager mm. to the to the point where, you know, I probably paid the price for it at school and got a bit bashed up and bullied because I was so yielding and doing what I needed to be doing at home. Right. You know, so it's sort of an interesting one. Um, I mean, I just, I just don't think that we'll... I don't think that when parents go on about, you know, you need to respect, I'm not sure that it's a language, a modem that actually teenagers understand that that semantic in the way that we do, you know, our generation mm. now. That's what I've discovered. Yeah. That top, so that top down kind of negotiation, yes. I feel yes. like that doesn't quite compute anymore. Mm. Like they're like, why? You know, like it's almost like we're on a <laughs> We're on a level playing field here. This mm. this this thing doesn't really seem to exist anymore. This thing, yeah. you know. Yeah, and that that's true. And I think fi finding some sort of way forward and navigating that piece by piece in different families is really, um, you know, tailored to each each whānau. It's not going to be yeah. the same for every whānau. And f finding some sort of common ground is is the key thing. And yeah. and encouraging negotiation skills 
Yeah. And and some kids are just extremely good at that. Like they know how oh. to, you know, out negotiate pretty much anything that moves. And then some kids are just naturally, they'll just fit in and, you know, they'll just yield. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I've had one of each. So it just depends how they sort of come out of the womb, really. One's one's a barrister in the making and one's just <laughs> one's just happy to sort of go yeah. with the flow. You know? I think things evolve over time. And I also think yeah. that depending on the different stresses and challenges that can happen mm. over and it's different for different genders. Mm. And of course we have um, you know, quite rightly recognizing the differences for transgender, non-binary young mm. people. In, in our current society, which has been there forever, but we just haven't um, recognized yeah. it and acknowledged those people. And we know that, you know, our society is particularly cruel to people that don't fit some sort of pre-existing yeah. um, mold generally, which mm. been, has been dictated by some kind of dominant um, cultural group. So, yeah, I think there's lots of complexity, a growing complexity in family life now compared there to... There is now. The yeah, last few I agree. I was going to ask you about, you know, old school thinking and how much old school thinking is in your field. And you've just sort of touched on, you know, these new frameworks. And, you know, there's, I think, as you said, you know, gender specific thinking like femininity and masculinity is mm. linear constructs mm. and no longer linear constructs. And so this old school thinking that you may have come up against that you'd be probably navigating you're now probably working with new constructs right and having to deal with these in your in your work now yes absolutely so I think mm. you know it's interesting we use euphemisms like old school thinking and I think for me what I understand when I hear those phrases is racism misogyny yeah um, judgment mm. and yeah. I think as as um you know, as women, as women going into medicine, as a as a Maori woman going into medicine, I certainly faced uh, a lot of a, regu that. a regular amount mm. of of that. Fair dose, yeah. And you know, I I would wish for a world for our our children and and our children's children where they don't have to, you know, build up some kind of resilience and, and prepare themselves for that kind of thing because it's incredibly toxic and yeah very bad for everybody's mental health so yes the the this kind of racism and misogyny is is rolls on and in fact i think we could also point to evidence of of a growing a growing um conservatism online um, I don't know about you, but I certainly get regular um, comments from people that I don't know coming onto my various social platforms and and making comments about my wins barcode on my face or oh. uh, you know some some tramp stamp on my face or that I you know I'm not really Maori or these sorts of comments that are you know it's extraordinary yeah. to me that that people the very people who hide their true identity they don't have a you know the their user profile is not their real name it's often a whole string yeah. of numbers they shroud their own identity in mystery but they're very much making comments about other people's identity mm. and challenging mm. other people's authenticity coming back mm. to the to the yes. theme so it's a yes. it's a very challenging time uh in terms of how technology unleashes uh new new manifestations if you like of these old of these old ways that we are yeah. we're used to uh but they've sort of creep back in through um social media and and different kinds of tech and i suppose it's a concern about how uh things like ai will uh, manage trying to make sure that they don't bring racism and misogyny um into and white supremacy into their ways of working. Mm. It seems difficult to stamp out uh, these rather age-old attitudes. They seem to be concurrent and very kind of embedded. Um, mm. I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, anti-Semitism and some of these, mm -hmm. you know, 
neo-Nazism and just as you say, some of these misogynist attitudes with what you know, these extremist attitudes that they're, they're very deeply embedded. And um, as a Jewish person mm. myself, and I'm going to come right out and say that I haven't mm. actually really talked about that at all, you know, on at source, but it's, it's, it's you know, I have encountered anti-Semitism here in New Zealand and so have my children and mm. so have members of my community. You know, it's very, I used to write for Jaywire, which was a, a Jewish news agency in Australia, but I used to be the New Zealand stringer, so the journalist here for New Zealand Jewish News. And I can't tell you how many stories I wrote about desecration of Jewish graves here in New Zealand. It just wow. goes on and on and on. And people distributing leaflets about the fact that the Holocaust never actually happened all over the country. So, I mean, I'm very aware of these things. So, mm. you know, you you make a, a very good point. Yeah, and, and and it's interesting because we actually have a strong Māori Jewish connection within my whakapapa. So I, one of yeah, my tupuna yeah. is, is uh, Samuel Yates, who's buried in yes. a Jewish cemetery in, yeah. in K Road. And, and yeah, I, I agree with you that there are just mm. horrific attitudes towards different groups in mm. our in our community, which are pervasive mm. and seem at different times, particularly through COVID, we saw a resurgence of, mm. of some um, very malignant um, operators, mm. I think, being quite predatory on certain people and, and trying to manipulate ideas. Um, we've seen a lot of um, terrible social media and anti-women um, anti um, hate speech to do without, you know, Jacinda Ardern when she was prime mm. minister. Yeah. Really, really revolting stuff. That's, so I think right. we, we face some huge challenges around hate speech and misogyny or, or all of those topics uh, on social media. Mm. I'm just going to take you back to, you did mention that one of the challenges being online bullying and that you were seeing a lot of that. And I wanted to touch on some of the challenges that you're seeing in the work that you're doing amongst young people at the moment. Obviously, online bullying is one of them. What else are you seeing at the moment? Well, uh, one of the things that we're seeing at the moment is uh, a rise in suicidality and suicidal thinking oh. and uh, a sense of uh, loneliness and disconnection mm. Uh, for for young people, we saw it uh, building through 2020 when when COVID happened, mm -hmm. and then through the various iterations of lockdowns and the huge yeah. disruption to our children's lives in terms of schools being shut. And um, it's it's such a critical period. We we know that uh, young children's development has been affected. And that, you know, many of the young children who started school at uh, in 2020 and then weren't able to attend school regularly. In some parts of the world, schools yeah. shut down for several years. Yeah. And so um, those children's learning has really gone backwards. So I think we're going to learn a lot more about these evolving needs over the next decades. Mm. The the impact of, of yeah. the COVID pandemic is certainly not gone. and you know, I, the way that we work um, at the hospital and in other settings is very much around the increased acuity and complexity uh, which which young people are bringing with them when they need to come to hospital at the moment. Mm -hmm. I was, I, I mean, I assumed when you started talking about this that this was a COVID-related, particularly this uptick. Uh, and suicidality was connected to COVID and the fact that normal life has been so majorly disrupted. And my GP um, said that the impact of COVID was only just starting to be realised now. I mean, my my team went to bed and didn't really get up for a long time. Um, ate, slept and learned in bed with one eye open. And I certainly had my fair share of worries over that time. It was a really difficult time. So I totally get it. And then when life kind of opened up and went back to semi-normal, I was like, well, we can get out of bed now and go down to Newmarket and see a friend. And it mm. wasn't really even as simple as that because that switch back to, well, the sun's out and you can jump on a bus now. 
it was just that switch back to normality just didn't really happen, I think, for kids like we thought it would. You know, school's mm. out, you can go and play. Um, yeah. It was just not an easy transition, was it, back to sort of normality either. You just can't turn, you can't flick the switch and go, oh, it's all back, it's all go now. No, definitely not. Well, I think one of the reasons for that is that there was there was such an extraordinary level of uncertainty and and that we had to keep adjusting and keep adjusting and trying to adapt to the different kinds of rules and the different mm. um, approaches to very personal and whānau-related risk assessments. So we were all constantly assessing to what degree we might or we might not be exposed to COVID and other yeah. effects of COVID. So all around the world, people have described COVID as a syndemic. And what they mean by that is it's a synthesis of all of the problems that we already had being made a whole lot worse. So all the inequities that we had before COVID, all of the difficulties around the socioeconomic determinants of health were expanded and accelerated and we've also had to live with a different kind of level of stress in our bodies in our minds we know that our our bodies are not designed to live with stress for such prolonged periods Uh, and so that's affected our biology that's affected how Mm. we how we consider uh, new experiences people are much more anxious and then mm. we've had these weather events, which have, have meant True. that people have become, they haven't had a chance to really True. settle back no. into some kind of new normal, Yeah. Uh, notwithstanding the, the level of uncertainty which remains. It's very hard to reassure, um, you know, children at different stages of development who've had to, you know, we, we are adults, we, we have a mm. certain level of um, Relativity experience yeah. of life yeah. and 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 a degree of flexibility, but mm. for children at different ages and stages, they don't have all of that to reflect on and to draw upon. And so, you know, kids who were already at risk of developing difficulties have have had very severe difficulties, and then children who seemed relatively settled have actually become a bit unstuck as well. Mm. And let's talk about your books. Do you, um, uh-huh. Just sort of, um, I'd just love to hear a little bit about the concepts that you captured um, in your books. Um, your first book was um, Araha, What Inspired You to Write It? I, I actually bought the book. I was coming out of surgery and I said to my partner, can you get me the book? And I read it and I loved it. I was lying in bed, which I hardly ever do. I was trapped in bed and I just wanted this little green book and I really loved it. But I would just love to hear from you, you know, a little about the concepts. Um, I read a bit about the backstory, but just coming from you would be lovely to hear. Sure. So um, I had written a newspaper column for a while and it always centred that writing around whakatauki, whakatauaki, proverbs, Mm. Māori proverbs. And um, so I was asked to write a book by Penguin Random House in the UK. And I thought, well, let's... um, you know, I like to give myself a challenge. So I said, well, I'll write a book of whakatauki, whakatauaki, and one for every week of the year. And and they loved the idea. Mm. And so I started writing the book. And it's um, it's a reflection, I suppose, of a number of different major strands in my life. As I said at the beginning, I love nature. I've always felt an affinity for nature. And much, you know, like our ancestors, they drew on examples from nature to give us lessons in life to remind us about, you know, there's consequences for these sorts of things or these are the sorts of things to focus on if you want to navigate challenges. So there were the Whakatauki, this is where we don't know the originator, and Whakatauaki, where we do know the originator, for all sorts of situations. And I was using these in my clinical practice, and I was also, um, as someone who's had to um, learn our language as a second language learner, was lucky enough to be taught by Tefarihuya Milroy, who was usually the guy who was teaching uh, Fakatoki and Fakatoaki, mm. and so he really encouraged us to go forth and share these um, nuggety bits of wisdom from our culture with mm. the wider world. So that's mm. what the book is about. So fifty-two Fakatoki, Fakatoaki, and a and an invitation for the reader to write their own. So uh, yeah, did it sell well? Did it did it go well? 
Oh yes, it's been it's been a it was the bestseller of twenty twenty one of nonfiction, yeah. and it's been in the top ten. Um, I think sold out in Paper Plus, didn't it? I think at the time it's it's, it's been yeah. reprinted many times. It's yeah, now on the Opera Winfrey book club list. Yeah, it's so um, good because I think really I went to get it and I couldn't get it and I had to wait uh-huh. for it to for a, for a rerun. I had to whip up to Eastridge instead of uh-huh. getting sure. it at my local at the time. I remember I had to sort of do a bit of a a ticky tour to actually get it, to get a copy at the time. So I do remember it being in high, in high demand. And then you went on to release a second book. Tell me about the second book. Yeah, so the second book is called Wawata, it, which is a word for dreaming, dreaming, mm. daydreaming and dreaming at night. And really it's a book about um, the Māori lunar calendar. So many of us and, and many people will be aware that there's quite a resurgence in thinking about the Maramataka Māori or the Okoro as we call it where I'm from. And of course Matariki and the Matariki National Holiday. And so mm, there's yes. lots of interest in um the Māori concepts of time. And I, like many others, have written uh, Maramataka for many years. And over COVID, I'd been really um, using that approach to, with my own mental health to help me mm. uh, get through those tough times of lockdowns and, and working in the hospital and having to put on the PPE and yeah. uh, looking after people, looking like an alien, which is mm. you know it's not what you want to be doing, uh, but essential for for that sort of period. So it's um there are thirty different faces of Hina, our Maori moon. And each one has a different name. And so for each of these 30 um, faces of henna, I've written um, some reflections and write some provocation, if you will, for the reader. You can also hear me reading the books uh, on audiobooks. And so this has also sold really well and mm. been in the in the top 10 of the bestsellers. I think, wow. Came out. Yeah, so you published that last year, right, at, at, mm-hmm. over Matariki. Yeah, and uh, that, that came a, out in October last year. Yeah, uh, October's just after. So, um, different different energies, though, right? With with this book, because mm. this book was really like a lockdown baby book. Yes, you could definitely say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different sort of energy. So, um, I mean, obviously, a very personal experience. Um, I mean, how would you explain the energy of this book compared to Aroha? Aroha. Well, I suppose they both have a lot of uh, personal reflections and mm. the, the Wawata book is a book a very much a, for mm, a book that I wish I'd read when I was young. Uh. So it is it is for women primarily mm. and for anyone who loves women. Uh, so uh, there is mm. a, perhaps a stronger female yeah. uh, lens and I talk about different ages and stages and I talk about fertility and recognising that um, I'm now in the age, you know, I'm 57, I'm not going to have any more babies. And that that came as a bit of a shock to me, to be honest, when I when I thought about that mm. really deeply. So I do go into some um, personal things about being a woman because I really believe that we've lost a lot of that opportunity when, when back in the day we would have got together with, you know, young women and young mothers and, and older women. To, mm. to share life lessons and to share supports and to brainstorm mm. with each other how to cope with different different um, experiences of life. But I do think that women get round the campfire and they still talk. Uh-huh. Men, men don't do that. I think that women still do that. There's a sisterhood out there. Mm. <laughs> Good. I still think, I think there is. Um, I'm not imagining it. Do you think that we've become disconnected, you know, from the learnings of our elders in, in general? As a society, or you think some cultures have still got that nailed? I think it's variable, isn't it? I think that um, there are lots of pockets where that kind of intergenerational transmission does seem to occur. And what I see in my clinical practice, which of course is a it's a different group of the population, is where yeah. where there is a lot of disconnection. So connection is very good for our mental health, that's for sure. Yeah, but do you think that it's been lost with elders? Well, I do, yes. I do think for some people it has been, and certainly for 
or Māori here in Aotearoa where we're trying to foster that and strengthen that and there are other communities in Aotearoa and around the world who are who are trying to mm. reclaim those ways of sharing knowledge and to look after old people mm. and to to um make the sure Asian that we honor them well, you and know? hold Asian. them in high esteem yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not familiar with um how everyone is is managing that mm. but I know that from my from my work and research around uh, dementia from a Maori perspective we certainly found that there are different ways of thinking about older people that come from a Maori perspective compared to many Pākehā perspectives. Mm, that's right. So you talk, I mean, you're living on Waiheke Island, yeah? And yes. obviously you must love the nature connection there. Um, mm. I've lived on Waiheke Island myself several times. <laughs> so I know the island well. So, I mean, that's a running theme in, in your world. Um, you obviously love the connection to nature there. With such a busy life, how do you... Find time to enjoy nature. What do you do there to enjoy, you know, getting out amongst it? Yeah, well, I do lots of things. And I suppose I'm always grateful for short periods of time in nature. So yeah. the the mere act of going to and from town on a ferry, crossing yeah. over the water is is actually extraordinary. You know, the other day on the ferry coming mm. into town, we saw dolphins. And, mm. um, you know, we all looked at each other. Many people don't know each other on the ferry, but we all looked at each other and smiled and we all said to each other, wow, aren't we lucky? This is so incredible. So there was, you know, there are special moments. We might see a rainbow. Um, some days it's pouring with rain and, and it, you know, <laughs> the weather brings us together too. I I also love to just go for short walks or dig in my garden, um, cooking Cooking is another thing that I love to do, mm. cooking with fresh ingredients, cooking with things I've we've grown in the garden. Um, You've got a cafe, right? Like a, a, a No, no, not anymore. Oh, no. oh, okay. It was a, a thing of the past. It was, yes. It was yeah, a thing of the okay. Past. Yeah, was that yeah. good fun though? Obviously you love your, love your food. And... Uh, it was really hard work. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. It was really, really yeah. hard work. Yeah. 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 These things are hard work, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of like what's next for you, what are you working on at the moment? Well, I work full-time clinically and mm. I'm also writing a third book. Um, are you? I oh. am. I am. And I've I've been had a had a recent meeting with my publisher and oh, that's um, exciting. Yeah. So we're yeah, we've got a few other things in the pipeline. Amazing. Yeah. That's great. So what's the so sort of what timeline are you working to for that one? Uh that would be published at the end of 2025 but okay. there might oh, yeah. be some other offerings that could be published a bit earlier than that wow okay so you're still busy writing so you are you just doing that well not just but you're doing that out of, out of work hours on weekends and evenings and things. yeah yeah That's so right. you are really busy just yeah. does I that like does it flow does that flow for you does it how does that work you just what do you do do you get up early do you and I do. I love to yeah. get up early. I love to get up with the birds and like like five o'clock or that kind of thing. Uh -huh. Yeah. And what time are you off to bed? I don't know how you do that. <laughs> um, I go to bed quite early. I I love uh, to go to bed early, like okay, eight o'clock. I oh, can easily really? go to bed okay. At, now oh, the confessions are coming out on the lifestyle. Yeah. That's really early, is it? Yeah. See, I, I yeah. love to go to bed early and yeah. uh, I, I like to have a, it's important for my well-being to have a good mm. night's sleep. Mm. Mm. Well, sleep is king. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sleep, lots of sleep is great. But I just probably would feel like I just, I'm missing out. Like I'm not getting any downtime or something if that was me. Okay. It's a bit early, yeah, to check out. <laughs> but I think it's amazing because you're obviously getting lots done. So you get up at five, you're jamming out things and then you're getting on the ferry yeah yeah that's often how it how it can work I, I also try to factor in time to think and mm. um not do all the time to just ah. be so I uh, I think we can all get drawn into this uh false idea of having to be busy doing things all the time oh when yes. actually it's a bit of a trap oh yes well that could be another podcast session <laughs> <laughs> yeah that totally could be another podcast session 
because I don't know how you do that, but that could be, you could do a one, two, three on that. Yeah, I think it's a really important part of mental health, especially at the moment. Mm. We've got so much, you know, we're stimulated by so much information all the time and actually having, valuing, uh, just having quiet time, reflective time. Some people like to meditate um, or just sit quietly and look at nature, sit under a tree, do something in the garden quietly, um, not, nothing too productive. I, I really I really value those things. Yeah. I don't know how you can do something but not be too productive. <laughs> <laughs> just sort oh, of muck around, you, just sort of muck around you, doing something. Ooh, I don't know how you scale it back so much, like uh, where that uh, fine line is. You, you know? have to practice it like everything you else. You do. You do. Practice yeah, doing scale, a little bit less. Scale back, lack to be lack, lack of productivity that, I start getting like hives thinking about thinking in that language. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually getting itchy and looking around for a cortisone oh. cream. <laughs> well, it's been actually great fun talking to you. I've learned heaps and um, oh, I must go away you. now and Google how to be uh, unproductive. After Good. That. Yes. Um, it's been, uh, no, it has seriously been amazing and a privilege to talk with you. Um, and I do wish you all the best with this new book. I'm going to look out for it and uh, look forward to reading it when I'm not in surgery, um, coming out of surgery. But uh, it's, yeah, no, it has been super and very privileged to have you amongst our community. Yeah, very welcome. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Yeah, it has been fun. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in. The Ad Source Podcast has a community of over 5,000 listeners worldwide, and we would love to hear from you. If you would like to support the show, please give us a rating and review, or get in touch via email in the show notes to give us feedback or just say hi. Ad Source Podcast does not accept any liability for the results of any actions taken or not taken upon the basis of information in this podcast or for any errors or omissions. Those acting upon information do so entirely at their own risk. We recommend that you seek professional assistance from certified doctors for your health and well-being issues.